You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thank you so much for joining me today. For this episode, I just had a phenomenal conversation with a young woman named Daylina, and she just got out of a psychiatric hold a few days ago, and I was so surprised that she actually was willing to come on the show and discuss her experiences with that in detail. It was a fantastic conversation, and she does such a great job of articulating her story and her experiences. So this is a very special episode, a very real episode, a couple of trigger warnings up front, This episode does discuss suicide, suicidal ideation, and there are also a couple of brief mentions of domestic violence and sexual abuse. So if these are things that make you uncomfortable, you may want to sit out on this particular episode. However, this was a very important conversation to have, and I think that you as an audience will really get a lot out of it. So enough of me talking, let's go ahead and get started with this episode of Bipolar Recorder. All right, the recording is in progress and today I have the great honor of being joined by Daylina, a new appearance on the show, someone who I connected with over Twitter, actually, and have been talking to for the last couple of weeks about her experiences with bipolar. She has a very interesting story. She recently just came out of inpatient treatment after an episode, and I wanted to turn it over to Daylina for a moment and just kind of check in with you, ask what's going on, how are you feeling, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe share your formal diagnosis? Um, sure, yeah, like you said, my name is Daylina. Um, so right now I'm feeling really good, um, suspiciously good, actually. I'm okay. like kind of trying to keep an eye on it because um, I've had some sleep problems lately and like but I'm not tired at all. And my mood is really high. And so I'm kind of like, Hmm, are things swinging in the other direction? I'm not sure. Okay. So that's kind of what's going on with me right now, but I'm trying to enjoy the, the positive mood that I have. My therapist uh, told me the other day, you know, as long as you're not engaging in any like risky, dangerous behaviors, just kind of roll with it. Yeah. So you, you were going through kind of a depressive phase. Um, is that what led to the hospitalization? Yeah, that, that is how the whole thing began. I was um, having a pretty bad depressive episode for about four weeks. Um, it started out like 
as it kind of does sort of creeping in and it just got worse and worse. I just so happened to run out of my Abilify about like the third, fourth week. I don't know. Time is fuzzy. And I just was too depressed to leave the house. Like I just couldn't do it. Kept telling myself every day, I'll go to the pharmacy tomorrow. I'll go to the pharmacy tomorrow. And then um, by the time that day six rolled around, things started to get real fun. Uh, Lots of crazy mood things going on. Um, That's when I started uh, hearing the voice in my head and talking to myself. And then uh, day seven of not having my um, Abilify was when the epic meltdown that I'm sure we'll talk some more about happened. Oh, and I meant to say uh, my formal diagnosis is I have um, bipolar one, uh, ADHD and PTSD and the PTSD plays into the episode as well. Yeah, for sure. Those are difficult diagnoses to live with, no doubt. Um, so Abilify, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't taken it in a very long time, but my understanding is that that is an antipsychotic medication, correct? Correct. Yeah, so unfortunately, you had run out of that medication and, um, you know, weren't able to get it refilled. That caused some symptoms to flare up. And eventually, unfortunately, you had to seek out inpatient treatment. Um, Do you, is it okay um, if we speak a little bit about the specifics of what led to the meltdown, as you put it, and how that played out and how you ended up in the hospital? Are you comfortable with sharing that? Yeah. Okay, so walk me through it. So like I said, things started getting weird on day six. I started hearing a voice in my head that was, that sounded like myself, but like was also separate from what I would think of as my own thoughts. And um, so, yeah, I started talking to the voice out loud and it was just saying things like, this isn't real. This isn't real. You've made all this up. Um, You're not even sick. There's nothing wrong with you. The only thing that's wrong with you is that you've made all this up and all that kind of stuff. Um, Started having some angry mood swings where I like, I just got very agitated and started like throwing things around in my room and stuff. And then my mood totally crashed and I went back to feeling like really down, really low energy, really depressed and um, actually had a psychiatrist appointment that day and managed to go to my appointment without really raising any red flags. Um, She uh, didn't even really bat an eyelash at the fact that I told her I'd been off my antipsychotic for six days. She was just like, oh, I think we should up that. I think maybe your Wellbutrin and your Vyvanse might be making you manic. And I was kind of trying to explain like, well, no, it's the going off of the antipsychotic that is causing this. It's not balancing out my other meds. But anyway, so I managed to leave that appointment without her seeming very concerned at all. And then the next day I woke up and um, I was feeling kind of depressed, but like not too badly. I was able to get out of bed and stuff. Um, and then like the voice started up again and it was just like going on and on about things not being real. This time it was kind of more talking about like my reality not being real more so than just like my illness not being real. And that like, I was, 
I was imagining everything, but it was so unspecific. And then I was supposed to go to work that afternoon. And um, I was very, very stressed about this because my mood was all over the place. I wasn't feeling well. I'm a server. So like, you can't really get by just, just can't like really a, wing it. a server at a restaurant, right? Yeah, a server at a restaurant. So I felt like I absolutely cannot do this. Like, I'm not going to make it through the shift. I'm going to start talking to myself at the table or I'm going to start crying. Oh, man. Um, but I had called off so many times in the past month because of the episode that I felt like if I call off today, I'm going to be fired and like everything is going to be a ruin. So I started feeling really backed into a corner and the voice um, started suggesting that I just take all my clonopin and that would solve all my problems in a very vague way. Like it wasn't being explicit and like that it would solve all my problems by me dying. It was just like, this will take care of the situation. And so wow. it kept at it for about two hours. And eventually that voice became very convincing. So I sat down um, at my vanity and I got out my clonopin and I had about 30, 35 pills left in there. Um, and I jammed two handfuls into my mouth, washed it down with some coffee and sat there for a few minutes. And then of course I stop hearing the voice and become a lot more lucid and present and logical. And I think, oh shit, did I just fucking kill myself? Oh God, I need to do something about this. So I go and alert my roommate to what's going on. And then I go to the bathroom and try to throw up some of the pills. Didn't work. So 911 comes, they take me to the hospital. Um, and I pass out immediately upon arriving, just totally black out. Um, no dreams or anything. Don't remember anything during this time, except a few seconds where I blinked back in and heard them talking about me not getting enough oxygen and putting like a mask on me. And then it's just all blank again until I'm shuffling over to the psychiatric hospital waiting room, which is actually attached to like the main hospital by a tunnel um, or like a, a walkway type thing. Wow. So like, was this necessarily like a suicide attempt or were you just not thinking clearly and you felt like these voices were telling you that the Klonopin would help clear things up. Yeah, so I really would not classify it as a suicide attempt. I'd had a lot of suicidal ideation while the episode was going on. Um, never got to the point of like feeling like I was going to act on it or making a plan or anything. And so, yeah, when, when I took all the pills and the voice was being really persistent, it was very vague on that aspect like it wasn't it wasn't saying you know like you need to die to get out of this it was just like just do this and things will be fixed wow that is so fucking scary and I'm so glad that you had that like lucid interval right after that and we're able to like reach out to your roommate and be like hey like this is going down right now um, yeah, me too. Like, I don't even understand because I was in such a state. I don't even understand how I managed to have that like lucid moment. I mean, I feel like, I don't know, maybe just like 
the act of doing it was like kind of a shock to my system or something. Mm -hmm. And like some sort of sense of self-preservation maybe kicked in. Do you remember when like the paramedics arrived or were you already like totally blacked out by that point? Like, do you know how long it took them to get to you? Yeah, so they actually got there very quickly. They got here um, probably in under 10 minutes. And I remember the whole thing. They came in. Um, I don't remember a lot of what we said, but I know they asked me a couple questions. Like they asked me how many pills I took and I couldn't really be sure, but it was around 30 pills. Um, and uh, they asked if I could walk and I was like, yeah, I can walk. And then I kind of shuffled out to the ambulance. Mm -hmm. I was in my slippers. It was snow, like it had snowed. And all I had with me was my wallet because my roommate got my wallet for me. The paramedics were like, you should get her wallet. And mm -hmm. then I'd had my phone in my hand the whole time. So I jammed that into my pocket. And those were the only two things I went to the hospital with. Yeah. And then in the ambulance, um, they started an IV for me and were asking me questions on the way there. That I don't remember, but I was awake. And they told me that when I got to the hospital, they would have the medicine that reverses or like treats like a benzo overdose. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is definitely some very intense stuff. So um, clearly bipolar type one with psychotic features. Um, a lot of people refer to that as the most severe uh, variation of this disorder. Um, super dangerous. Um, again, so glad that the paramedics were able to get there quickly and that you were able to get to the hospital quickly. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, and we'll, we'll get back to the hospitalization experience, of course, if you would still like to talk about that. But um, I wanted to ask you, how old were you when you were originally diagnosed and how old are you now? So when I was officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I was about 22 or 23. Okay. I'm 28 now. But when I first started receiving medication um, and like treatment other than therapy for mental illness, I was 17. I had something of an episode that I don't really know how I would classify it, something like a manic episode. I'd had like hyper productivity for a few weeks, was running on little sleep. And then eventually it turned the corner and it turned into anxiety and panic, panic attacks, extreme agitation. I was scratching myself until I bled. And finally, like I told my dad that I was like, I think something is wrong with me. I think I need help. And he took me to the doctor and um, my, the nurse practitioner actually prescribed me Wellbutrin um, mm -hmm. for some reason. And that actually caused suicidal ideation. Okay. And so I had an appointment with an actual psychiatrist, um, worst psychiatrist I've ever had. Uh, he, so he kind of asked me very few questions about what had happened. And he said something so odd. He said, sounds like perhaps a touch of bipolar, a uh, touch of a bipolar, touch, just a sprinkling, a smattering, um, <laughs> oh God. whatever the hell that means. Yeah. Um, but I was getting really depressed at this time. So he decided to put me on Zoloft. Okay. And Zoloft basically made me into a zombie, um, led to me dropping out of high school. And I'd been in like 
this advanced program that was like really high stress and it's like a college prep program and I was doing really well. And so like, it just really crushed me to have to drop out of that program. So I ended up leaving high school altogether. And from that point, basically I was in and out of treatment and mostly being treated for a uh, major depressive disorder. Okay. I had finally a doctor that took a more thorough history of me and asked about like previous episodes. And at this point I had had um, a manic episode and I was able to kind of describe that to him, which is sometimes very difficult for me because I tend to forget a lot of yeah. what goes on and of the timelines and stuff when I get manic. Um, but that was the person that diagnosed me with bipolar disorder at about 22 or 23. And uh, that same doctor diagnosed me with PTSD. Wow. So you and I are actually uh, pretty similar in a sense, because that's about the same timeline that happens with me. Um, I had not been in like proper psychiatric treatment in my late teens, but as I um, graduated high school and went to college, I started having like depressive and hypomanic episodes, which I didn't recognize fully at the time because I wasn't diagnosed. So shortly after I graduated college, when I was like 22 years old, um, I had a really, really bad, like really severe manic episode. And then that's what led to being diagnosed as bipolar type one. And then eventually as things unfolded, bipolar type one with psychotic features. So um, I'm also 28 years old. So we are, uh, we have kind of like this similar timeline of events, which I, I think is interesting. It seems that a lot of people get diagnosed in their late teens, early 20s. And that's kind of like the prime time when things start popping off for a lot of people, not everyone, but for a yeah. lot of people with bipolar. Um, so circling back to your recent inpatient stay, um, now this was not the first time you had been hospitalized, right? Correct. This is actually the fifth time I've been hospitalized. Yeah. So you're, you're like a veteran of the psych wards at this yeah, point. You... I'm an old hat at it. <laughs> oh man. So for, for this particular time, what was your experience like there? Um, was it a comfortable experience? Was it stabilizing? Do you want to talk a little bit about the doctors or therapists who you worked with while you were there? Um, sure. So I have very mixed feelings about the experience. There were some things that really were awful and there were a couple positive things that came from it. Um, my initial two and a half days I spent in the psychiatric ER waiting room because they don't discharge patients over the weekend and all the beds were full. So they had nowhere to put me. So I'm just in this locked room with like a bunch of chairs and like nurses behind a plexiglass yeah. window. Ugh, and so weird. it's so bizarre. And when I get there, I'm like not very lucid at all because like, you know, I've, I've been whatever saved from the overdose, but like, 
there's still a lot of um, meds in my system. Yeah. So I when mean, I have 30 Klonopin is a lot of Klonopin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I have the intake appointment with like the intake psychiatrist, I literally do not even remember any part of the conversation. And he had me sign myself in, um, which has happened to me before. Yeah. Um, which is like, what led to a lot of my agitation later on. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit different here than in Florida. Um, in Florida, it's a pretty solid 72 hour hold. That's when I'm from. And mm -hmm. after 72 hours, um, if they can't like prove that you're a danger to yourself or others, um, they either have to take you to court or they have to release you. Yeah. But here it seems that, um, and, uh, sorry, you're currently in Pennsylvania. I'm right? in Pennsylvania. Yes. Okay. Here it seems that, um, it's basically up to your doctor at what point you get released. There's no, like, once you sign yourself in, it seems it's not like a strict three day thing. Like they can easily keep you longer. Yeah. So I signed myself in and I'm in this waiting room. I have no phone numbers. I can't contact anybody. Um, my poor best friend probably thinks I'm dead uh, right. because he knew what I had done. And I get really agitated in the waiting room after like the first day because there's no stimulus whatsoever. There's nothing to do there. There's nothing, there's nothing to do, but try to sleep. Um, and my vitals are being taken every two hours because yeah. of the overdose. So like, I'm not exactly sleeping restfully. Um, so I end up having another kind of little episode in the waiting room where I started banging my head against the plexiglass and yelling about how, like, you can't keep me here. Like, I didn't agree to this. Um, yeah, because you were under you were still under the influence of heavy medication when you had signed the paperwork. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I felt like like I'd been tricked and essentially yeah. I had been. Um, so they gave me, um, Cyprexa or Zyprexia. I've never heard of it before. It's an antipsychotic okay. and put me in a private room. So then I was completely alone, um, for several hours with like nobody coming in or out, nobody around me. And just like the TV playing Shrek of all things. <laughs> And I was like, this is bullshit. It should be Shrek 2. Yeah. Um, obviously the better movie. And then eventually, uh, after the two and a half days, I got up to what they called the trauma ward. And um, there, uh, there were a lot of nurses. They don't really explain to you much. They kind of give you a quick tour of the ward and then just take you to your room, um, especially because it was nighttime when I got there. And... So I finally had gotten some numbers off of my phone. I was able to make a couple calls. I only got a hold of one person, uh, my friend, who thankfully I was able to reassure that I was alive. Um, and it was just like, I felt so isolated and so cut off and just really, really agitated um, for that whole like day and next day. Then the next day, um, the doctor did eventually come to see me around 5 p.m. And he was probably the best part of the experience. Um, he asked me lots of questions. He was really interested in my background, 
which was something new, like generally psychiatrists that I've spoken to are concerned with a pretty short window of time and like not really anything like actually about you as a person, like any traumas that may have occurred or anything like that. So he asked me plenty of questions about my background and then questions about what had happened and basically kind of summarized it for me in a way that I was like, oh yeah, that is what happened. Um, And he said that the extreme stress that I had been under, um, because that was what led to the depressive episode was extreme stress um, from work and school. Like I had just overloaded myself and basically cracked under the pressure. Yeah, you had a a lot of environmental a lot of environmental stressors too. Exactly. So he said that in response to the extreme stress, I began to dissociate, which is kind of what the voice in my head that was telling me that this isn't real, this isn't real had to do with, and that I developed some psychosis. And I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds about right. And he was the first person that I talked to to accept like what I was saying about it not having been a suicide attempt, that it had been something else, like just an act of desperation with me not thinking really about what the result might be. Yeah. So this, this is good to hear that the doctor actually actively listened to you. You know, like in, in my own experiences, um, I, I've had what you were describing first, which is like the doctors focus on a very narrow window of time. They kind of don't take into account the full case history or the full context of what's happening. So it sounds like you had a really good doctor who was working in that psych ward with you. Yeah, absolutely. This was um, my first experience with a doctor like that. And it was great. And he even like, um, he asked me things about like how I grew up in my childhood. And he even pointed out something that like, in his opinion, had been a trauma that like, I had never really considered having been a trauma. And that was being separated from my mother when I was two years old. And he was like, that's a traumatic experience. I was like, you raise a good point. (laughs) Yeah, like, isn't it so weird sometimes how you don't realize that an event was traumatic until like a doctor or therapist actually points it out to you? Like that's happened to me before. Um, Where I was sharing something in therapy once and I I was kind of just like, oh yeah, and then this and this and this happened. And then next thing I knew, I was like hyperventilating and like freaking out. And my therapist was like, hey, uh, this this is trauma. Like, I don't want to use like, the word but yeah it's a traumatic event and sometimes you need like a third party to point it out because it sort of in in my own case just becomes part of you um and you you just live with it and kind of deal with it um but um so I had a couple of other reactions to what you were um, speaking about. One of them was that I think it's cool that the nurses actually showed you around the unit for a little bit and kind of like at least made some level of effort to help you understand what was going on and what the protocol was and stuff. When, When I was inpatient, they didn't do that for me. I've only been inpatient once, so I only have one experience with it, Um, but it was for a few days in uh, 2015. Very intense experience, very traumatic 
experience as I eventually learned to designate it as. And when I was in there, and this was in the state of Virginia, um, they, uh, they basically just threw me in there in a room with like a guy who was even more psychotic than I was. And I was sharing this room with this dude and I was just like, I was so angry. I was so irate that I was there, not unlike yourself and what you were just describing. And um, I had really no idea what was happening or like what you were supposed to do. I didn't know where the bathrooms were. I didn't know like what time meals were supposed to get delivered and things like that. So it was a very like, disorienting and ambiguous experience and that caused a whole lot of stress too. Yeah um, my first hospitalization was very similar to that um, where they just dumped me in this room. In that particular case I actually had a room to myself. Um, Unfortunately they locked the door from the outside so you like they just I'm I've literally just experienced a severe trauma Um, My father had recently passed away and one thing led to another. I had a freak out. I had um, broken all this glass and slashed my arms pretty badly and put my fist through a window, had to get all these stitches, et cetera, et cetera. And so like, this has all just happened and they lock me in a room by myself. Um, Can't go to the bathroom or anything. And uh, they don't explain anything about what's going on. They don't show me around. Granted, there wasn't much to show around. It was a very small place. There was Mm -hmm. just the rooms and the living room and no window. Yeah. Yeah. um, That definitely sounds like a healthy environment, right? You know, it's Yeah, that's how you recuperate. That that sounds very... Very, uh, very therapeutic. Um, I'm being sarcastic, of course. Um, yeah, I, I had a uh, therapist who I worked with for longer than I should have. She was not a good therapist. And um, I was talking to her a little bit about hospitalization once. And I was like, yeah, it wasn't like a comfortable therapeutic experience. And her she just shot back at me. Well, it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to stabilize you. And I was like, that is the worst attempt at stabilization that I've ever received. It just made things a lot worse for me. You know, I, I personally had a very negative experience in the hospital, like, like your first time, but I'm glad to hear that this time around, um, unfortunately the fifth time, maybe fifth time is the charm, who knows? Um, I'm glad to hear that this one was more productive. And I I do hear what you're saying, though, about having mixed thoughts about it. But it it sounds like maybe what you what you may have needed at that time. I mean, certainly you needed intervention for the clonopin overdose. I mean, you could have died um, like literally, you know, Um, but um, yeah, in, in terms of like signing yourself in and stuff like that, it's never made sense to me why that is legal or considered ethical to do that to someone who is not lucid and is still actively going through an episode. Um, I, I have toyed with the idea if God forbid I'm ever in a situation again where I do have to be brought in for inpatient treatment. 
I've been wondering, and I don't know the answer to this, but I've been wondering what would happen if you just stonewalled all the intake doctors and were like, no, I need to speak with my lawyer. Like, I need to speak with legal representation before I, I make any sort of statements to you or sign any paperwork. Like, I, I'm sure I'm not the first one who has thought of doing that. I'm curious how it would play out in real life probably wouldn't go that well, but um, it's just something I've been thinking about lately. Well, I did that once. Really? Minus the part about the lawyer, but I basically was essentially pleading the fifth. I was like, I'm not saying anything. I'm not telling you anything because in my mind at the time, I was like, well, if I don't say anything, uh, they can't prove that they have any reason to keep me. Yeah. Well, they committed me. Yeah. They were probably just like flatness of affect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No interest in life. How were they able to commit you if you uh, weren't even responding to their questions? Um, they said that they had evidence that prior to my arrival, I had been a danger to myself based on um, reports from other people, uh. um, which is probably true. Um because my girlfriend, she, um, she took me in and I was just kind of like, fine, whatever. I'm like, they're not going to keep me mm -hmm. um, because I'd been having a lot of like suicidal ideation and had kind of reached the point of like making a plan and she figured it out. Um, but I was like, oh, fuck this. I'm not staying here. Like mm. everything's fine. And if I just don't say anything, like it'll be okay. And um, apparently in Florida, this honestly probably isn't even legal but yeah based on um the information that she provided they committed me wow yeah so it's almost like hearsay or whatever um it, it's so fucked up how stigmatized people with serious mental illness are where they're like their own words won't be taken as valid um because of their diagnosis and then like you were just describing um in certain cases they start relying on like third party evidence or third party accounts and it's really like you're kind of at the mercy of the other people around you to um see how things ultimately pan out and it, it's in in my own case again just as always speaking from my personal experience like it's not a transparent process. Like when I was in the psych ward, I did have to meet with a lawyer eventually after the intake. And then I had to meet with a judge and I was in what in the state of Virginia is called a civil commitment, which is like you get brought in, then you have to meet um, after all the intake stuff, you uh, meet with a lawyer. I met with my lawyer for about 30 seconds. I had never even caught his name. I didn't get a business card. I had no idea who he was. He was just like a court appointed attorney who showed up to my hospital room and broke it down for me really quickly. And he was like, here are the three options. You know, one, you can just tell them that you want to stay voluntarily and they'll probably keep you here for like three to five days. Two, um, you can try to argue against it and they might be able to keep you up for 30 days. Or three, you can argue for being released and then you'll effectively just be out on the streets. So I went with option one. I decided to stay um, technically, voluntarily 
under a uh, civil commitment. Um, but like my, my point is that like the process isn't very transparent. Like you don't know what dirt other people have on you. You don't know what the intake doctor's assessments were. Um, you don't know what other people are telling the hospital. So it's like, I kind of had to just take a shot in the dark. I was like, if the, that's really what the options are, then I would, I guess, rather stay in, in the hospital um, rather for, for a period of about a week rather than have to stay for up to 30 days at a doctor's discretion or, um, you know, uh, basically like be homeless, you know? So um, yeah, very intense stuff, very scary, very ambiguous stuff. Um, anyhow, um, so after this hospitalization, so glad that you got out. Um, at what point did the doctor decide that you were safe to go home? So um, that was one of the other great things about the doctor is that he asked for my input on it and we kind of worked on it together. Um, and so I had been there about three days already. Three, yeah, that was my third day there. And even though I had been very agitated and upset um, the first two days and also the third day, because I was just like, I, I gotta get out of here. Um, this is terrible. I was starting to stabilize. And um, so it was funny. I actually had this whole tirade prepared for when the doctor came about like how, you know, this is bullshit. Like I was like, I was tricked into being here. Um, mm -hmm. You guys like, you can't do this to me. You have to let me go, et cetera, et cetera. But the doctor took so long to arrive that I took a nap. And when I woke up from my nap and he was like there, he's like, sorry to wake you up. I was just so placid and passive and like my <laughs> raid went out the window, which probably was for the best. Yeah. Um, and then after having that experience with him and like having been so calm during the thing, like during our meeting, um, he was like, you know, I don't think that, that you're a person that needs to be here for an extended period of time think that you just needed a place to stabilize and um, kind of like get your medication back in order and um, just kind of get back on your feet. And so you, I don't think are a candidate for like staying here a long time. And he like also said, I understand that you have a life to get back to. Um, you have things that you need to do and you can't just languish in the hospital. So he asked me, you know, when I thought like I would be comfortable going home. So this was like on Monday or Tuesday. And I said, you know, I, I feel like I would be comfortable maybe staying another two days. I ended up being there until Thursday. Um, but yeah, so we worked together to decide on a discharge date. So this, um, at the time of this recording, this all happened and you were discharged like literally three days ago. Yeah, which is that crazy is, to think about. That is so crazy to think about. And um, I just want to mention for the audience, like how much bravery and um, just courage you have for talking about these experiences. And I mean this too, like, I'm not just saying this, like seriously, like this is such a raw and real and new experience and I just thank you so much for sharing all about this in such detail. I think it sounds like this 
this doctor just sounds like a person who really was able to empathize with your situation and, and had a whole lot of compassion for it um, and for you. And that's uncommon to find sometimes. So I'm so glad you were actually able not to just get ordered around by the doctor, but actually work collaboratively on a treatment plan and on a discharge date. And I'm, I'm so glad, like I said before, that he was actively listening to you and trying to work with you. Yeah. And like one of the things about my experience talking to him the first day is that he really validated my PTSD diagnosis, which is something that like, I don't talk about a lot mm -hmm. because like a part of me always feels like, oh, I don't, I don't deserve that diagnosis. Like what I've been through isn't, isn't valid enough to be considered like that kind of trauma. And I just feel almost embarrassed about it. Like, like I'm some sort of like imposter. Mm -hmm. um, and so for him to like, really just, like I said, validate that diagnosis for me, I really kind of internalized it for the first time. I was like, you're right. I mean, you're right. I do. I have flashbacks. I have the nightmares. Like I have all these stress responses, the dissociation and everything. Yeah. It's like, there's a common perception that PTSD only affects people who have been in like war zones and right. been shot at or been in like horrific car accidents or things like that. But it can be a lot of other things too, you know, life events affect people on a very deep level. And um, I, I'm glad that you felt validated. I don't personally like consider myself to have PTSD. I just think I've been through some traumatic experiences that I've been able to work through, through a variety of different ways. Um, but I like I've never had like a formal PTSD diagnosis or anything like that. But I'm I'm really glad to hear that in your situation you, you've kind of been coming to terms with it and recognizing its validity. And maybe does does that make you feel like empowered in a sense? Or like how how would you describe that? Um it actually like this is something that I really struggle with it makes me have a little bit more compassion for myself. Yeah. Um, it makes me feel like, yeah, those things that happened to you were so terrible that in many ways they, I mean, not in many ways, like in every way derailed your life. Um, yeah. Like I'll insert a trigger warning here. I'm going to talk a little bit about abuse and domestic violence, okay. but um two of the, I have what's called complex PTSD, which means that it's not centered around one specific event, but like a series of traumas. Right. And um, like two of the main events that, that are the causation of my diagnosis is I was abused by, um, like sexually abused by my brother when I oh was 13 God. years old. And then when I was uh, 23, when I was getting that bipolar diagnosis, um, I was in a relationship with an abusive alcoholic and he hit me. Um, and so I have flashbacks of both of those things happening. And so it is kind of weird that like I would not 
accept that like my PTSD diagnosis was valid until until essentially he told me it was. I'm, I'm just so sorry to hear that that happens to you. Um, and um, I, I am just reflecting on that and your experience. And again, I, I think it's so important that you do feel validated now and, and that you do feel self-compassion um, for your experiences. It's not like these things just come out of nowhere in your mind, you know, like they are rooted in, in traumatic events. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that um, so, so openly. Um, I, I wanted to ask, uh, now that you're out of the hospital, what medications are you taking now? Do you feel like they are helping? So, so I am on the same medications that I was before I went into the hospital, but we have increased my Abilify um, dosage from 10 milligrams to 20. The day that I had the appointment with my own psychiatrist, she said that she wanted to maybe go as high as 30, but that we would start at 20 to see, like to not have it be so jarring of an experience. So when I was in the hospital was when we increased um, the dosage and then I take um, 200, no, 400 milligrams of Lamictal, a mood stabilizer. And I take um, 300 milligrams of Welbutrin for, as an antidepressant, um, which is actually the only one that has ever worked for me. I do not respond well to SSRIs and a multitude of ways like Prozac made me suicidal, yeah. which seems really ass backwards, but <laughs> it's an ironic side effect of something that's supposed to make you not depressed. But... And when I told my doctor, like what was happening, he was like, yeah, that can happen to people with bipolar disorder on Prozac. And I was oh. like, well, why the fuck did you give it to me? This was a previous doctor you had yeah. the doctor at the hospital, obviously. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Abilify, the Lamictal, the Wellbutrin, and then I take um, Vyvanse for the ADHD. Yeah, I um, I take Lamictal, Vralar, Buspirone, and then I have a uh, as-needed prescription for Klonopin. I also take Adderall XR daily um, to treat ADHD as well. And I've found that this particular combination of, of medications has been very helpful for me. So I'm glad you're on a cocktail right now that, um, you know, seems so far so good. I mean, this is actually the best regimen that I've ever been on. Um, this has, I've had the most positive results. I mean, this whole situation aside, but like I was at baseline for a few months. Um, I've on medicine, like my mania is almost always like completely controlled. I might have small episodes of hypomania, mm -hmm. but for the most part being on meds, like totally keeps the mania under wraps, but no matter what I take, the depression, like I still have episodes, yeah. but, uh, on this particular combination, you know, I've spent a lot of time at baseline and, um, like lived very productively and the depressive episodes with the exception of this last one, haven't been as long, haven't been as severe. 
So these are the best results I've ever had um, on medication. And I have been through the gamut of pills and combos. Um, I've also taken Vralar, didn't mm-hmm. work for me, um, among yeah. many other things. Yeah, I'm, Vralar has worked well for me personally. Um, I, I think that it's had less side effects than other um, antipsychotic medications that I've been on. It, it is a newer medication, so it's extremely yeah. expensive. I yep. had to get like my doctor to fill out special paperwork for me to make it affordable. Um, but it, for me, it's been a good medication. Um, glad to hear that you're on a, a good cocktail right now, as I like to call them cocktails of medication. Um, wanted to ask you, um, have you learned, like, what, what would you say you've learned from your experiences over the years living with serious mental illness? Yeah. So, um, I feel like I've learned a lot. The main thing that I've taken away from all this, and I don't know, I feel like this is kind of generic to say, I feel like this is what everyone says, but I've really learned that I'm extremely resilient. Yeah. No matter what happens, um, I bounce back every time. Um, I always find a way through, like I always somehow manage to make it and somehow manage to put together my life again, every time, every time that my mental illness kind of wrecks it completely. Um, I've always managed to come out of the situation. I mean, I ended up basically like homeless at one point I was living in somebody's hallway. Uh, yeah, I slept outside once because like I'd been kicked out of somewhere that I'd been living, um, because I was acting like lunatic. Uh, Um, but somehow, some way, like I've always been able to pick up the pieces and put it back together and just keep trying. And over the years, like um, I've become better at trying. Like I just have every time, like I get back up, I get back up like more quickly. And the continuous like work on myself and like really sticking with therapy and sticking with my meds and trying over and over again has yielded results. That's so awesome. Yeah. Resilience is something that I think you do learn from living through intense negative life experiences for sure. Some people don't like the word resilient, but personally, I don't mind it. I think that it's a a good way to summarize that state of mind. And I'm glad to hear that the work that you've been putting in on yourself is helping you bounce back quicker and quicker each time. I mean, that's a positive progression for sure. So you seem like a very resilient person to me for sure. Um, Do you have any advice for people who are living with mental illness or maybe living with friends or family members who have mental illness? Um, hmm. I would say pretty much following up on what I just said about being resilient. Um, I would say that, you know, you just have to keep trying even when things feel hopeless. Um, things do improve. It is possible for it to improve for a long time. I just, I felt like this is never going to get any better. So why should I even try? Like my life is doomed. Like this 
illness is just going to prevent me from leading any kind of productive life. And like, I was feeling like that again during this episode, but um, I would say another thing, like in order to, to really realize that that progress is possible to try to document your experiences um, through like journaling, even mood trackers, there's like all kinds of apps now or whatever. Um, But through documenting your experiences somehow, you can look back and see like, even if it's just incremental, but you have like proof of the progress that you've made, because if you do continue working at it, like you will have made some progress. That's phenomenal advice. Um, I totally agree with you about documenting things uh, for the reasons you just described. And also it comes back to something you mentioned a lot earlier in the show, which is that sometimes when you're having like manic or depressive episodes, it can be really hard to describe or explain them to others, especially therapists or doctors. So it's good to have like written down records of what's been going on. So you can bring those into your appointments with you and reference them um, to help provide more specifics about the um, symptoms that have been going on and make sure you don't leave out anything important. That's something that I do too. I use a mood tracking app called eMoods and um, I kind of just use it to like track sleep patterns, make sure I've been taking all my medications properly, Um, you know, adding little notes here and there if there's been like a particular life stressor that has occurred And I'll pull it up during therapy sessions and just like double check things and make sure that I've covered it with my therapist um, and uh, even with my psychiatrist. So I do those same things through journaling. So like every week, right before my therapy session, I will go back through the last week's journal entries and just kind of like skim them over and like pull out points that like I want to talk about. Um, and kind of like, oh yeah, this is how I was feeling that particular day. Um, I'd kind of forgotten what like the lived experience of it was. Mm -hmm. So it's like good to be able to reference. And it's also cool to just like, be like, how was I feeling March of 2021 and go and read back and be like, oh, okay. I was like total deep shit, but (laughs) here I am. Um, so yeah. So what's your outlook on the future right now? You know, my outlook on the future right now is like, is a little shaky. It's a little in limbo. It's starting to improve a little bit during this episode. And like, while I was in the hospital and particularly the days leading up to the episode, like the first time that I came onto your um, like mental health space, I was feeling just very, very hopeless about the future. Um, I'm in college right now. I'm after taking several years off, still trying to get my undergrad degree. And I just felt like, I don't know how it's possible for me to complete this. And like, I, I want to go to grad school and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. If I continue having episodes throughout my life that just totally derail everything. Um, so I like, I didn't have the most positive outlook there for a while, but now that I'm starting to feel better, um, 
and having talked to some people on Twitter and having seen some people's experiences, like people who are working on their PhD and like who did complete grad programs and who've been gainfully employed and like a serious job for, you know, like 20 years makes me feel like, okay, um, this, this is possible. It's not going to look like other people's journeys. Um, it may not be on the timeline that I would like it to be, but if I continue, just continue along my path, um, I can figure out a way to do it. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely possible that you can achieve those goals. And you're right, everybody's path is going to look different. No one's life is going to be exactly the same as another. Um, and thank you for mentioning the Twitter spaces. Um, Delina is referring to a pretty regular um, mental health chat that I host on Twitter called hashtag mental health chill zone. And those are um, basically casual peer led um, conversations about mental health and just whatever's on people's minds. They've been growing a lot in popularity over the last few weeks. And that's actually how you and I, Dalina, first met. And I, I remember you, you came into that space and these are like public audio chat rooms. And um, yeah, you were, you were feeling like super down and you had been listening to the conversation for a while and you decided to chime in and kind of share what was going on. And I, um, I remember just listening to what you were saying and it, it was really resonating with me. And I'm so glad that you decided to stop in on that and then continued to keep joining the other spaces and kind of keeping us all updated on the developments in your treatment and your successes and even, even some of the setbacks. Um, so I, I'm so glad, you know, it's like serendipity the way paths just cross like that. And your yeah. story is so interesting and you do such a great job of articulating it. Um, so. Uh, we're coming up on about one hour into the recording, so I just wanted to check in with you and ask how you're feeling. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up, or um, do you want to ask me about anything, uh, anything of that nature? Um, well, I'm still feeling good. I'm feeling better, actually, because this went more smoothly for me than I was afraid it, like it might go. Uh, I was pretty anxious uh, about coming on. Um, I, I told uh, Hunter before the show that I had to take an anti-anxiety anxiety medication, which I felt a little weird about considering what just happened. Um, <laughs> it was a responsible dose. It was, yes. I was very careful this time. Um, so yeah, I'm feeling good. Um, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to talk about my experiences. And it means a lot to me that you're interested and wanted to talk to me about this. Um, I've found that, that talking about these things like really helps me and makes me feel like, you know, there's a small chance that maybe I'm helping somebody else because through these Twitter spaces, um, hearing people that I can relate to and that relate to me has been an immense help 
um, in kind of helping with the feeling of, of isolation and feeling like you're alone in this situation. And as you said, it is very serendipitous, like um, a mutual, fr like a friend on my main Twitter account just happened to mention like the bipolar club hashtag. And um, I ended up following Orphan Moon uh, mm -hmm. from like those posts. And one night I was just like on that Twitter, just thinking about how shit things were. And she shared um, the link to your Twitter space. And I was like, well, I've never been on one of these, but what the hell, let me, let me see what this is about. And it's been, it's been a really great experience. That's so awesome. And it means a lot to me that you would be willing to come on the show and share so much about yourself. I mean, I, I sound like a broken record, but it takes a lot of bravery to do that. I mean, these aren't easy conversations to have. And I'm always just so humbled when people feel comfortable enough to kind of come on and contribute to the Twitter spaces. And especially when people actually want to contribute to the podcast itself. Um, it's very moving. It's, it's very humbling, like I said. Um, just as we're wrapping up here, I wanted to ask if you have any projects that you want to plug, like any social media. I know you recently wrote a short story um, about your, your recent experiences. Do you, do you think you'll publish that or share it in some way? Um, so I don't have a place where like I publish my writings yet because like one of the things I learned about myself is that I am an extreme perfectionist and so <laughs> I never think anything is good enough and so I never want to share but this particular thing I decided that I wanted to share but because like I haven't established a place where I share my writing I was like you know what what the hell I'm just going to share the link to the Google Doc. So I did put that out there and it's actually um, my pinned tweet on my, actually on both of my uh, Twitter accounts, but my Atro2 account, if you want to put how that's spelled in the podcast notes. Yeah, I'll add that to the episode description uh, so people can find that account. Um, you, you call that your bipolar burner account, right? Yeah. It's like, it's a little bit more than that now. That's like kind of how it started out. I had been talking a little bit about my mental illness on my main Twitter account and my friends are very supportive and I've always been very, very open about it, but I was just going through so much that I was like, I don't want to flood their timeline with this stuff and like I don't want to like force this experience on people so I'm going to go to this other account that I already have and kind of post in spaces where people people are looking to to talk about these things yeah yeah I think it's important to set boundaries in place for yourself and be aware um, that sometimes other people aren't going to get it. Maybe people who don't know you that well, or maybe people who do know you really well and are just super concerned. And sometimes you just need like a, an outlet, like a judgment-free outlet where you can just throw out whatever's on your mind. Um, I know a lot of people who do that on Twitter and, um, they, they find it to be a, a good platform for just getting crazy thoughts off their chest. So, very cool. Um, anything else you wanted to add? And again, for the audience, um, be sure to check out the episode description so you can find Dalena on Twitter and uh, read her new story. 
um, that, that she's put together. Um, so Dalina, just anything else you wanted to add before we close out the recording? Yeah, I'll just add really quickly about the story that I wrote. Um, I wrote like 80% of it while I was inpatient in this crappy notebook that they gave me. And um, a lot of it was written as like a stream of consciousness sort of thing. It's a little bit of a wacky story. It's meant to be like a dark comedy. I'm poking fun at my experience. Um, as I like tweeted under like the link to the story, this is not meant to shit on inpatient care and say that like all inpatient care is bad and that nobody should do it. It's just, it's kind of trying to be like a dark but also light way to give people a view into what being in an inpatient facility is like. And um, yeah, so it's written as kind of a stream of consciousness sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it covers a lot of what we talked about here, but also kind of like, like the fun sort of silly details of being inpatient. Yeah, there's like humorous aspects to it. I, I remember when I was inpatient, I have this funny memory of everyone just getting together and doing like basic aerobic workouts <laughs> in the hallway. And like one of the nurses put on like some like silly ass music and everyone was just like hanging out like doing very light aerobics and like laughing at each other in, in the hallway and you're, you're just like oh my god this is so fucking ridiculous right now like I, I can't believe I'm here doing this but it, yeah I have a different memory that like cracks me up that's uh from a prior hospitalization we were having um, a visiting day or like visiting hours. And for once I had somebody who was visiting me. Uh -huh. And so we're having a little pizza party and the DJ gets on because we're going to have music. And the first song that he plays is I have friends in low, low places. Hmm. And I was okay. like, okay, that's a choice. Thanks. I have friends in low, low places. I'm not familiar with that song. That's probably not the title of it. I can't remember the title of it, but yeah, it's like, it's about that. Like I have friends in low, low places. And I was like, what are you insinuating about these people's <laughs> friends? I wouldn't, I would try not to read too much into it, but that is funny. Um, yeah, within that context, for sure. All right. Well, thank you so, so much again for coming on. I think this has been a great conversation that's really going to resonate with a lot of people. I think that a lot of people um, are going to be interested to hear your story and um, that the episode went really well. So thank you again for coming on. Well, thank you again for having me. Like I said, it, it really means a lot and um, I've enjoyed it. I thought it went really well too. So thank you. Absolutely. I really hope that this conversation resonated with y'all. I think that Daylina, just as I said so many times throughout the recording, I really do think that she just had such a tremendous amount of courage to come on. She did a fantastic job of 
speaking and articulating her experiences and i'm just so humbled and honored that she she shared that all with us i am on twitter at hh keegan bipolar recorder is on twitter at bipolar recorder be sure to check out our hashtag mental health chill zones if you'd like to join in on those conversations that Daylina and I mentioned during this recording. It's a really good way to meet other people and find a community of support online in a judgment-free environment. I also wanted to mention that there are now new tiers on our Patreon page. And if you want to get cool, exclusive merch related to Bipolar Recorder, you can totally check that out. We've got stickers. I'll even write you a special poem that you can receive and hold on to in a tangible format. Just cool stuff like that. Cool art, cool books. Um, If you're into that sort of thing, definitely check out our Patreon page and help support the show. It helps cover the production costs and all of that good stuff. So your support really means a lot to me. Thank you again so much for listening. Have a fantastic and safe day or night wherever you are. Polar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.